0: Welcome to the podcast. I am Shane Barker, your host of Shane Barker's Marketing Madness podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about SEO and how to rank number one on Google. My guest is the SEO Mozart himself, Rand Fishkin. He's the founder of SparkToro, and he previously he founded Moz and inbound.org. He's also the author of Lost and Founder, a painfully honest field guide to the startup world. And he's previously written two more books, Art of SEO and Inbound Marketing and SEO. So anyways, let's jump into the podcast. So where are you guys at right now? You guys in Seattle? We are. Mm-hmm. Awesome. 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 So cool. I just want to like, like I said, let's go ahead and jump into the podcast a little bit. Where did you, did you guys, did you grow up in the Seattle area? Have you always been in the Seattle area? I just want to kind of grab a little foundation for people that don't know you.
1: I have. I was technically born in New Jersey, but I moved here when I was three months old. Gotcha. So you've been in Seattle the whole time? I've been in Seattle, uh, yeah, 40 years. God, it's crazy, man. is not time flying? Oh, it's does. It's incredible to me.
0: And then what about your family? So did you, I mean, growing up, did you, so you had your family moved from, obviously from the East coast and moved over to Seattle.
1: How big's your family? Not very big. Deb- depends on the side. My mom has four brothers and sisters. And so I've got cousins on that side, but my dad had only one brother and he died just a couple of years before I was born. Oh wow! Yeah. Just, just before starting college. So pretty tight little family. I have a brother and a sister.
0: Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And and give us, what about any interesting facts growing up? Is there anything that you're like, nobody would know this, but my family did this. Like my family's like, I'll tell you, I can give you an interesting facts that I've never told anybody that my mom used to, I think we were the first people to eat. Oh God, what was it? It was like, it tasted like cardboard. It was like these veggie sandwiches. And I think they were like the first ones ever made. And I don't think they were made out of vegetables. I think it was made out of cardboard or something. And they tasted like I didn't eat a lot of cardboard growing up, but I'm assuming that's what cardboard tasted like. It was absolutely terrible. So that's a random fact about me. You have any, cl- <laughs> any cool random facts growing up? Like, you know, we used
1: to do this. Well, so let's see. My, my dad was a very thrifty person. I think he still is. Um, I don't have a very close relationship these days, mm. but he, when we were growing up, was obsessed with coupons and saving money and getting great deals. And uh, he had a... He had a system figured out where he he knew all of the managers of yeah. the meat departments at the various grocery stores around our the rural area where we grew up. It was unincorporated, King County, which is the, the county that Seattle is in, but it was a good 45 minutes from the city. And he would drive around to all the different grocery stores knowing which days they put their meat on sale. And Shane, I cannot recommend enough that you buy... If you're gonna buy something fresh, it should be meat, yeah, because you know for all of the years growing up, right for all the years that I lived with my parents, I had bowel trouble, and I didn't really understand why <laughs> right I just thought like, okay, this is me, this is my body, I am someone who consistently has this problem, and then I left home and I started eating thing non expired meat, and my god, it's incredible i'm mm. i'm great i'm I'm in perfect health
0: so i'm and there's, you can look at things from two different angles. And I, I'm going to tell you what the upside to, to what your dad did for you is now you can actually probably go to Thailand and eat food off the carts right off the streets, right? Because you were, as a kid, you were ready for that. Like, I mean, he actually trained you for the bigger journey of being able to eat off carts and stuff like that. And maybe that wasn't his goal, but I'm just telling you, you really have to, there's a angles coming right? Like I'll have to go take advantage of that sometime. Let me know how that goes. Cause I've only done it. I've done it once. Cause my wife's very adventurous. We're huge foodies. And so, you know, you read, you see all the shows and you go on my cards, you're like, God, it doesn't look that super like, you know, California, like, Hey, I don't think they had the health department come through today, which I don't necessarily think I need that until I go eat this phenomenal taco. God, that thing's amazing. And then all of a sudden I'm you know yelling at a toilet from both ends. But but I think you might be a little more prepped than I was for that. i um, not saying that's a good thing, but it, you know, if if it comes to that, then at least you're going to be ready for that. So that, that could be an, the upside. But I do agree with you that I think if you have expired meat's it's probably not the way to go, right? I mean, it's like, would your dad raise like in the depression? I'm trying to think of like a, the timeline with that. Was it kind of a time where- No, no, you know, no. my uh,
1: My grandparents, uh, my grandparents were- but my dad was not, but my, my grandparents were not particularly terribly off. Uh, my, my grandfather was a chemical engineer. He grew up extremely poor and, and my grandmother too, but oh. they, you know, they sort of had a classic 1950s style middle-class American lifestyle, which I, which I think, you know, is, is fairly remarkable. All of their, um, all, all of my ancestors are Jewish and they, you know, they all came over before and during World War II. And so they're, they were essentially all refugees, right? and the ones who made it ended up being my grandparents on both sides but they were okay right they were like i think there was more class mobility mm-hmm. in the united states at that time as well right you could you know my grandfather was super poor living in new york and his dad was a was a tailor which was kind of the only job he could do and he but he managed to you know get into a good public high school and then get into a good public college and yeah. when he graduated he yeah. was able to get a get a job in his field and make decent money. So it's I think that is much harder today, right? It's much much less there's much less economic yeah. mobility in the United States now than there used to be, but yeah, they made it happen, yeah. But they made it happen?
0: Made it happen. That's awesome. So it's funny like my mom like growing up my mom was a, a bargain shopper too. We didn't we didn't eat a lot of meat, <laughs> so we didn't we weren't even if she know, known about that. My mom was like almost like a vegan or like a vegetarian but not, but we would always anyway. So we we didn't get the discount on meats but my mom was absolutely a discount shopper like any like Marshalls and Ross and Mervins oh, yeah. like we were like always looking for the deal. I remember like as a kid like just looking through stuff and trying to find the deals. Whatever that was a shirt that you know usually would have been 20 bucks was now you know $7 and then can we get 20% off of that? So I remember that like very vividly. In fact, even today I'm a I don't care if I have a million dollars I'm always like oh, I got to see if I can get a discount. I'm I'm the guy that goes, I'm the guy that will go to to Moz and then I see at the bottom, it says, you guys say, you know, enter like, you know, coupon code. And I'm like, you know what that means? There's a coupon code somewhere, right? So I've got to go search this and I've got to go find this, you know, and I'll spend an hour, which, you know, I charge two hours. <laughs> so I would spend $30 to go find this 10% off coupon so that I can get $6 off of, you know, a monthly Moz thing or something. And then, you know, but at That's the end good. of the day, it, it is where it is. Yeah. I am I'm all about saving that six bucks. You know? I, mean,
1: I agree with you. I, I've had the same behavior myself. and. I think this is a good reminder for SaaS products that potentially you shouldn't put that discount code field there for everyone. Yeah. And instead you should make it URL dependent because I, I agree with you. I think that actually lowers conversion rates significantly in the checkout process. And I don't think a whole lot of SaaS product designers realize that. Related, I don't go to Ross very much, but uh, TJ Maxx is pretty much where everything in our house is from that's awesome i don't know if you saw the the report i think it was just a few days ago but basically tj maxx is finally investing in their website right it's 2019 tj maxx which has been an extraordinarily successful retailer the last 20 years by the way yeah like they have done very very well and they've done it through providing this sort of experiential store Going to TJ Maxx's website, to me, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. But going to TJ Maxx, the store makes a ton of sense. In fact, that's the kind of place I think will survive and thrive even in the era of Amazon's domination of e-commerce and Google's domination of shopping. Like, I'm a big believer in TJ Maxx. If I bought stocks, I would buy stock them. See, and that makes sense because, you know, the thing is, and that's, I
0: think, just because you don't always have to be online. I mean, I think people think that you have to be, but... Yeah problem is like with TJ Maxx is because their inventory always fluctuates, right? I mean, there's always, there's not like it's... Do they go and buy stuff like in bulk of like, hey, we want to, you know, and then they go... And-
1: yeah. So they basically get, my understanding is they get overstock from gotcha. a lot of different places and they do buy in bulk, but they save a ton of money because they don't have much, if any, warehousing. So everything they have goes directly into the stores. And so unlike a, you know, Nordstrom, for example, right? Nordstrom might have backstop and and like warehousing totally. issues, even Amazon, right? Amazon has this huge logistics supply chain yeah. and TJ Maxx sort of sits at the end of that and they they don't have to care about whether we have X or Y or Z in stock, right? Because they don't have a fixed product set. And I think that's actually pretty genius. That is
0: genius because that's, I mean, that's a lot of your costs, right? Is just the, the, the warehousing of the product and now you just bring it directly to consumer. Now for them, obviously the issue is going to be like, you know, I mean, if you grab, I don't I mean, I guess it just depends on, I mean, I, the reason I'm saying this is like we, I did some, some stuff with the 99 cent store. And one of the biggest problems was like, what do you put on the website? Because only yeah. some people in Sacramento or in Seattle or in a certain area. So what they would do is they had these it was kind of entry, they have these little Facebook groups that people that would talk about, like the 99 cent store as an example. And they would say, Hey guys, I'm here in the Seattle place. And I just went and I saw they have the George Foreman grill for 99 cents. And so they would put some on the Ooh. Facebook group and everybody would go ape shit crazy. And then they would go over there and buy them all. So and it's the same thing. I think TJ Maxx is going to have that same potential issue, right? It's inventory. Like you, you know, you only have so much inventory. So it goes to these three stores. And how do you put that on your website? Is it like through an IP address that only, you know, Shane gets, Rand gets to see it and Shane gets to see it because it's there?
1: Yeah. And I think that's one of the challenges I remember early days of Home Depot. Mm-hmm right? Because a lot of folks wanted to have delivery of these big bulky items. And and so figuring out the logistics, being able to uh, zip code yourself. And then the challenge too of, I think this is a big problem IP address wise, uh, regardless, right, is, oh, I'm trying to help my grandparents get a new washer dryer. I'm in Seattle. They're in New Jersey. Yeah. I can't shop for them, right? I have to get a, yeah. I have to somehow VPN into their house yeah. in order to <laughs> be able to go to uh, Home Depot because they didn't have a reset your zip code to whatever, right? They just automatically detected. Yeah, these uh the online to offline issues, I think, is a big thing. But I'm sort of uh I'm a fan of anyone who can compete against the giants right now. Yeah, Home absolutely. Google, Amazon, Facebook, right? Any any competition to me, to my mind is it's healthy. Is a great thing.
0: Yeah, you you have to have that for the marketplace. And I think the problem is, you know, they get so big you know, the, the cool part is if you're a startup, you're a little more agile and you have some, you know, you can move a little bit better, you know, you can start chipping away at it, but you just have, you know, it's like, it's obviously Amazon and nothing against Amazon, but it's, I mean, how many businesses, how many, have, you know, low, like brick and mortar businesses have shut down because of Amazon. I mean, the numbers are staggering. It's absolutely incredible. In fact, I was at a conference, this was maybe about a year ago. And I remember there was a like director of marketing or what, VP of marketing for uh, Marriott. And they were talking about like, what is, what is he worried about in the marketplace? And he goes, the only thing that we're Marriott's really worried about is that if Amazon gets into doing hotels. Like that was his only thing. Like he was like, that scares us because they're that disruptive. You know, they're jumping into health, you know, obviously with Warren Buffett and health and stuff. So, which is, you know, there's sometimes it's awesome. Like that's great in the health industry, you know, when when it comes to insurance and stuff, maybe that's going to be helpful, but it's the other side of it. It's like, they start to get into the monopoly type deal where it's like, man, it's like, are they too big to fail? Which is, you know, you know how that goes, but it is, it's interesting, man. I I do, I think it's healthy to have these other companies that are, they're pulling up their, their coattails and seeing what they can do to disrupt stuff. And, you know, still adds a little bit of balance to to the market.
1: I am shocked to hear that Marriott worries more about Amazon entering their market than Google, who's already in their market that is mind blowing i mean google is google is going to squeeze every penny of margin from the travel sector yeah. and the big hotels and big chains are the ones who have the most to fear sure. Right, because they can they can just bleed that stone dry.
0: Yeah, well, they've got Google Flights and Google everything, right? I mean, at this.
1: Yeah, right. And 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 they have trained Google has trained consumers not to visit hotel websites, not to visit you know uh, individual OTAs. I would be losing my mind over Google and the fact that I, you know, like, well, what if Amazon starts building hotels? Yeah. That feels so speculative to me and so unlikely.
0: It was, it was something else. I, it, like I said, when he said that, I thought, wow, I didn't see that coming. Cause that's, cause somebody asked him, what is the biggest thing that you guys are worried about? And he didn't even flinch. He said, Amazon. That's the biggest thing that we're worried about. I was like, holy (laughs) and So cool. So let's talk about, you know, obviously I want to talk about Moz a little bit. You know, I I know the history of Moz and I know the kind of, I've listened to a few podcasts that you were on. I want to touch on that a little bit in regards to SEO and kind of touch on that, but I also want to talk about SparkToro as well. I was really intrigued when you started that just in regards to influencer marketing and the term influencer marketing and just some of the stuff that goes into there. So, I mean, like I said, we'll talk about SEO, we'll talk about SparkToro, talk about some other stuff and we'll just kind of see where the podcast takes us. But tell us a little bit about Moz. I mean, obviously you started Moz. It was a number of years ago. Can you kind of go through that story a little bit? You don't have to give us everything there, but I just want to kind of talk about like what happened there and kind of, you know, how you started the business. I know that you talked about some stuff, of you guys almost sold and there were some other things. Just interesting, just from a startup perspective on how you guys ran things and the stuff that you've learned through that whole process. And I know it's only an hour podcast, so I don't expect for you to go into heavy detail, but just give us a little rundown about Moz and how you started it and kind of go from there.
1: Okay. Yeah. So let's see the, I'll try and give you the story in brief. I dropped out of college in 2001 and started working with my mom, Jillian, who'd been running a a graphic design and sort of marketing one woman show in the Seattle area. And we got into web design mostly because her her clients had started needing that, and I was um, mm-hmm. passionate about that world. And ran a failing, money losing business for a few years. Eventually, we stopped being able to pay our subcontractors, including our the folks who were doing SEO for the websites we were helping and building. And so I had to learn myself because we had already committed to these contracts. Mm-hmm. And I found that I really liked SEO, but was also very frustrated about it. Particularly frustrated about the opacity and secretiveness and the unwillingness that Google and the other search engines had to share how things worked, yeah, right? I thought sure. I thought security through obscurity was a terrible idea. I, I still think that, <laughs> right? I still think that Google could open source their algorithm and they'd be fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they have nothing to lose. And I think it hurts a lot of small and medium businesses, a lot of uh, smaller practitioners because they... Um, they can't compete no, against the big I don't know how to break in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I started this website called SEO Moz that was uh, specifically built to share what I was learning about SEO and help people understand and, and do it better. The blog sort of took off and I got in, invitations to speak at conferences and events and we got consulting contracts and sort of managed to save the business through that process. And then in 2007, we had built a little bit of software, not, It's not really software. It's like six or seven little SEO tools, one-off SEO tools. We put them behind a PayPal paywall because we couldn't afford the server bandwidth to make them uh, open and free. And six months into that, we were making as much money from subscriptions as we were from consulting. And I got pitched by some venture investors and and local private investors about, hey, do you want to try and take this thing to the next level? And Raise some money, and so we did. Uh, I became CEO, and over the next seven years, we we scaled that software business from a couple hundred thousand dollars to about thirty million dollars. I stepped down in 2014 from the CEO role during a bout with depression, and promoted my longtime chief operating officer to the role, and she's been CEO for the last uh, five years now, almost five years. Yeah, and then I left Moz 18 months ago. So beginning of 2018 on Europe not terrific terms. I remain on the board of directors and, you know, I'm still a shareholder in Moz. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm cheering for them to do well, but um, yeah, it was kind of a, unfortunately not the best departure.
0: Yeah. I know. I obviously, anytime you get capital and anything that happens and there becomes other people that are involved in your business, right? I think some people don't, I'm not saying you didn't understand this, but I think some people don't understand what that means, right? Like, Oh, this is awesome. I'm getting capital. I'm getting funding and this is awesome. But then there's a different set of rules, right? Then things change because you have people that are, that have a vested interest in what you're doing and you're not quite in, in charge of your startup anymore. Right? You're, not charge, you're not driving the ship as much anymore. And I think some people don't understand that. I used to do consulting early on many moons ago with startups and kind of saying, Hey, listen, like that's awesome. But you also have to be, you have to really figure out what this means, right? Because not all money is good money and you have to figure out what are those terms of that. I think you touch on that a little bit in your book, The Lost and Founder, that you came out with. What I think it was 2018. Tell yeah, us a,
1: yeah. the book came out just about a year ago.
0: Yeah, and is that does that touch on? Obviously, I'm sure it touches on your experience with Moz, yes. and it's kind of like this: like, hey, let's just what I love about you, and you've always been a crusader for just transparency, right? And like, hey, like, let me just shoot it straight. And I, I don't think just not a lot of people out there that I think that are like for the people, right? And I've always felt like you were that from an SEO perspective, but also from an entrepreneurial perspective. And I think you're just extremely honest, which is Awesome because and I think that's your frustration before you started Moz was like, you know, SEO is this little like, you know, behind the scenes, like we can't really tell you what's going on and all this kind of stuff like, wait a second, why don't we just talk about it? Like, it's not a big deal. Why don't we try to figure this out? and, and, And there's power in numbers. And let's work it out and figure out what we need to do to be able to.
1: Well, and I think the evidence speaks for itself, right? The more educated, the more effective, the more more people understood how Google's algorithm worked and how to do SEO correctly the better the web got for Google, right? They were able to index more stuff, more people created better content that more people wanted. It infuriates me that they have maintained this attitude of secrecy and let's mislead people and, you know, all these public statements from their representatives that are just yeah. easily provably false, right? Their congressional testimony in July, right, where they they cited some of my research, yeah. Yeah. you know, and then, you <laughs> know, Google's representative in front of Congress, right, is just lying bald faced. And it's so obvious, right? Nobody who watches it would, you could, you could be the biggest Google fan in the world and you'd go, Oh, I didn't know you could lie to Congress like that. <laughs> I thought I thought you had to tell them the truth. I guess maybe our government doesn't work the way I thought it <laughs> worked, right? Yeah. I thought if you get suspointed by Congress, right, and then you you lie there, you're gonna you're going to be held in contempt and maybe they maybe they will be right. I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's just a fine. And that's why they don't care, right? Because they just they can afford to yeah. you know, just brush yeah. it off. But it it's out. still infuriating to me how deceptive and misleading that company is. And I think there's I know personally know dozens, if not hundreds of people who work there who are good, honest, kind, thoughtful people. And when they're confronted with this stuff, they're kind of like, well, you know, that's just how it goes at a big company. But to my mind, it doesn't have to be that way. And I, and it's so funny.
0: I think it's funny when you say it because I've done SEO for a long time as well. And it's, you kind of forget that there's other options, right? You, you're like, oh, it's always been this way. So you're like, oh, that's just the way that it is. But if you think about it, it doesn't have to be, right? Like it's, it's and it's a very basic concept of like, if you would just let us know, then we could do things better, yeah. right? And, and then yeah. everybody, because there's a thousand websites and there's, everybody can check this and look at the algorithms. And I mean, there's enough information to have a good idea of how to do SEO now because of the different softwares and everything. You would assume at a certain point, Google would say, hey, listen, let's just, Let's all work this out. I'm just gonna let you guys know when there's updates. We're just gonna be very transparent on what, what we're doing. You know, because it's, you're not, in theory, you're not supposed to game Google, right? You're not supposed to try to get to the number one rankings organically, right,
1: through well, any kind well, of... Why not? Like, I don't, I don't understand that at all, right? The, I mean, you know, the whole idea of creating a market, right? Creating a market where... Uh, On the advertising side, you bid more, and you have more relevant content, and you have better conversion rates, and you're serving customers better. And so Google ranks you higher in the ads, right? And they're very transparent about that. And in the organic results, if you serve searchers better, you know your content does a better job. You get more clicks. You get more, you know, fewer people pogo sticking. You get uh, more links and more, you know, better reputation online and off. And uh, your brand improves. Then Google's going to rank you higher there too, right? And the fact that they are unwilling to be transparent about what those things are exactly and so misleading so often about, you know, different elements, everything from like, oh, we're, we're not, you know, we're not going to really tell you what's going on with, uh, with subdomains. Uh, we're not really going to tell you what's going on with, you know, how big a deal it is with mobile friendliness or, or site speed or those tiny little ranking factors or are they really big? And we're just saying they're tiny and little. Yeah. And, you know, there's a million other examples, right? Every day, I look at their, you know, their representatives who are sometimes very helpful. I would say 70-80% of the time if you look at what they say, it looks pretty darn helpful. Sometimes it's still not the whole truth. And then, you know, 20-30% of the time, you look at it and you just shake your head and go, "Oh man. I hope that person does their research and doesn't listen to that." Cuz mm-hmm. that's that's such bad advice, right? And it's provably bad advice and it's really easy to show that and wh- why are you doing that to those yeah. That poor business owner. I don't understand.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, it, you, you do think that they have some kind of an ethical responsibility. And I understand they own the search engine, right? But I think there is some kind of responsibility of like, hey, like it doesn't hurt them necessarily, right? I mean, people are already trying to, in theory, game Google to become number one. So it's like if you just gave us a rules of engagement, yeah. you know, that we're, so we know what we've got going on, then it's it's easier. And you're going to have more people that, that do it right. That either now they know how to rules right? Like if I know how to follow the rules and I don't want to follow the rules and I get in trouble and I get de-indexed or I get slapped with a penalty, then okay, that was my own fault because I knew the rules of engagement. But if you don't know the rules of engagement, it's this weird balance of like, am I doing this right? Or I'm not really sure. I mean, I I think I can do this and uh, I guess we'll kind of test it and then we'll see how it works out. You know, it's like, it's just, and it's been that way for how long? I mean, I guess since the
1: beginning. Since the beginning. Yeah. I mean, I think this is one of those, this is one of those things, right? Culturally speaking, companies inherit the strengths and weaknesses and attributes of their founders. And I think you know, Larry and Sergey are brilliant engineers and uh, the culture that they formed around uh, secrecy regarding how the search engine operated is something that's persisted through two decades of Google's life. And have you ever talked to those guys? I
0: mean, I mean, I know obviously you have kind of a direct and what I mean by that is because, <laughs> you know, because obviously you, you jumped on the radar and you started doing some stuff and I looked at you was like, Hey, we kind of need him as an ally in theory. Maybe they don't, I don't know. <laughs> but have you ever had conversations with those guys or is there, are they like, Oh God, here goes Rand. like uh, I, I was you.
1: I was supposed to have I was supposed to be on a call. This was maybe 2008, something like that, with Sergey when they were launching SpaceX, mm-hmm. and they, you know, they basically were like, "Hey, we, we would like someone to do, you know, the SEO and marketing side of it." And I was like, "Holy shit! One of Google's founders wants to talk to me about doing." seo for their big space and holy crap all right this is gonna be awesome i missed the call yeah. i missed the call and that the next day was when i started looking for a personal assistant and and getting a better calendar situation that was uh it was such an awful awful day you <laughs> just felt like crap and of course you know i emailed to apologize I'll show you and i never got a re- I never got a reply from him or his office again <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was okay. it was me flaking on a phone call. They oh. were like screw all American oh, business owners man. <laughs> and, so, like, and worldwide right it's, yeah I do not know that was probably me do you think that's why they haven't been transparent at Google is because of what you did because mm-hmm. of that day do you think mm-hmm. I, I mean having an assistant it, that's not, I'll show him. I, I think I was just I just realized that I was a little uh yeah
0: overwhelmed but no, I mean no pressure there and I don't mean to put it all on your shoulders but I, I think correlation to you missing that meeting and not having an assistant yeah, yeah. well I
1: mean I think that's, that
0: is that is too when I was like God how is this gonna end you guys jump on a call well the, the irony of the whole thing, which I think is absolutely hilarious, is you have the owners of Google that are hiring somebody to do SEO. How ironic in the sense that you're like, I feel like you could probably get number one if you talk to a few people in at Google. I don't know. like,
1: it just, I mean, if you look at look at the, the tens of thousands of employees who left Google over the last 20 years, and there's what, maybe three or four of them who are in the SEO world now, right? So working at Google does not mean you uh, know something about SEO, right? I think that, if you're an engineer and you're working on, hey, I'm trying to build, you know, a neural network machine learning system off of uh, a bunch of data that's coming in. That that doesn't mean you understand how to build a brand online or how to reach out to people or what is gonna, you know, what's gonna resonate and get people to link to you or what's going to. Uh, resonate with with searchers and be you know the kind of content they want to read. That makes sense. It's a totally different skill set. So I, I
0: yeah, that yeah. makes sense. I'm with you on the branding side of things, I'm, but I do feel like from an SEO perspective, they could probably pull a few levers if needed. Yeah, I mean that's you know I mean I kind of feel like since they own it, but yeah, I, I get it. That makes sense, and it sucks that you missed it. So how was that that night? You're like, I oh, what did I miss today? You're having a beer, and you're like, hot talking to the wifey, and you're like, Hey, what's going on? I, oh shit, I forgot my 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 meeting with the owners of Google. That's what it was. Another day. Well, it happens. But you showed them. You're like, you know what? I'm Rand. You remember that. Okay. I don't, I don't have to make it to your well, little meetings. Okay. Uh,
1: yeah. I don't you, know if I. Yeah, then, uh, yeah. I got you. I got you. It makes sense. I guess it depends on your definition of success. I always find it funny when folks are like, oh, you know, Moz was this big success. And I'm like, well, it depends. Right. If it was a non institutionally funded business, then I think, yes, you would say Moz is a great success. Right. It, grew very fast and built up an extraordinary reputation in the field, yeah. at least up until a few years ago. And I think that it you know, had a very positive impact on many, many people around the world in terms of their education and understanding of, of Google and SEO. And, and I am proud of that. But the job of a CEO, the job of a, a company like Moz is to return capital to the fund that invested in it in the quantities that it's supposed to. And that means realistically, right, Moz has raised $29 million. So it really needs to find a way to return $290 million. And I think from that perspective, right, Moz is kind of a a little bit of a stuck in the middle company. It's growing, but not very fast. You know, maybe it'll do 55 or $60 million in revenue this year and, mm-hmm. you know, has decent margins. It's profitable, mm-hmm. but it is not going to sell tomorrow for whatever, eight hundred million, seven hundred million million, $700 million in return, 300 of that to its investors. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I we'll put up the good vibes. I hope it does do something like that. Hopefully something happens and then, you know, you can go grab your money and, <laughs> and go buy Seattle or do whatever you need to do out there. But well, that's awesome. And I, I you know, like I said, I've always been I mean, I do have to thank you as an individual that jumped into SEO. You did help for me as an individual, um, and I and people in my company about understand the transparency of it and, and really educating people because it was at a time when there wasn't tons of education about SEO, right? And I do think with the whiteboards and all the things that you did, I do think that had a huge impact, you know, whether you're, you know, you haven't sold out, and made billions of dollars or whatever, but the idea of the transparency and, and what you did there for the cause, I think is very admirable. And I think you did a phenomenal job. So I, I want to thank you as, as a person, always been a fan because oh. I do appreciate was, kind of you. Yeah, no, It just, it's, it's one of those things. And maybe that's why I bought your dinner 10 years ago or whatever it was. I don't even know. Cause I thought maybe one day he'll jump on a whiteboard and educate me on some stuff that I don't know about. <laughs> <laughs> or like a, like a magician on those. Was it, wasn't it Fridays you did the whiteboard Fridays? Yeah.
1: Whiteboard Friday.
0: Look at that. Look at that. How many of those did you guys do? Like hundreds?
1: Uh, let's see. I did 52 a year yeah. cause it was every, every week. Occasionally, uh, we did have guests, so probably five a year were not me. But yeah, I'm, I'm, there must be three hundred plus. That's awesome. Maybe maybe more than that, right? Because it would have been would it start in oh nine and run until? I mean, I was filming some early this year, and so uh-huh. um, yeah, that's crazy.
0: Yeah, that's a long time ago, man. Well, and then I will ask you just this is a really very basic question, but in regards to SEO, what do you feel like hasn't changed? I mean, what do you feel like is the three core things you're like, hey? From all the stuff that I've seen, from whether building software, doing this, doing that, like what are the the core? Most people should know this, but what are the core things that you would say? Hey, listen, these things haven't changed. It's backlinks. It's creating great content. Like, is there anything magical? Of course, it's probably not. There's probably a lot of the stuff the same.
1: Yeah, I think that that's magical. That hasn't changed. When I say magical, I mean non-intuitive but obvious once you think about it. Is that a lot of people create content and brands and products to serve their customers, right? Essentially, you know, you, whatever you and I set up a, um, a store to sell soccer jerseys. And we think, Oh, you know, soccer players and fans and and people who like to, you know, wear athletic clothing, they'll, they'll buy from us. Let's make stuff for them. And I think the, the big failure in that, not that it's a, it's not a bad thing, but it is not going to get you rankings in Google Mm. compared to compared to people who figure out how to build a brand, a message, a product that people who are likely to share and amplify work across the web want to link to and amplify. Mm, gotcha. Right. So like you have your customers and you have the world of influential people and in publications who can amplify. And if you make stuff for your customers and not the amplifiers, you will lose out to people who make stuff for the amplifiers.
0: I think that probably directly ties into SparkToro,
1: right? Yeah, in a way. Absolutely, right? SparkToro is, is designed to help you figure out, you know, who is influential and what what publications and people are followed by a particular any particular set of an audience. But you know, even at Moz, right? That was a that was a core part of how you how you do link building, right? You have to figure out, okay, these are all the people who might link to me. How do I get them to do that, right? What can I do that they will all want to link to and share? And I think the folks who realize that built really successful businesses even when their product wasn't necessarily as good. And I think this is one of those frustrating things for a lot of entrepreneurs and product builders and engineers in particular. For some reason, engineers hate the fact (laughs) that marketing can win over a good product can mean that, right. A subpar product <laughs> beats a, beats a superior one. But Hey, I mean, that is, that is how capitalism works, my friends. So
0: that is it. That is it. It's a, it can make your product great or it can make your product terrible, right? Marketing
1: It comes down to that. Yeah. And I mean, the best, the best is obviously the combination of the two, Yeah. right? A great product and great marketing is going to be great marketing with a bad product. Yeah. Because over time your reputation will suffer and people start to come to know not to buy from you, et cetera, et cetera. But great, great marketing can overcome a lot of product challenges.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So, and I, you know, so when, when you say it out loud, I mean, it's, it's simplistic of what it is of like, Hey, you don't need to necessarily produce content for the end user. You produce it. Well, great content that's shareable, right? Content that, that people want yes. to go and talk about, right?
1: Content. If you're doing content marketing, right? If you if your content strategy is we want, our content to help us reach a new audience and to help us rank higher in Google and to help us get social shares and traffic and help us diversify our traffic sources and help us, our brand be known, then creating content for your customers, your end customers almost certainly will not get you there unless your customers happen to be you know, people in media and social amplification and journalists and you know, writers and that kind of thing.
0: So tell us a little bit about spark tour. So you did kind of touch on it a little bit in regards of finding, you know, putting out content and find out the people that share that content and, you know, maybe share competitors content. Give us a little,
1: first of all, you started, what was it two years ago? About a year and a half ago? Uh, yeah, not not quite. About a year and a half
0: ago. Okay, about a year and a half ago. Give everybody a little rundown because I, I do, I mean, I'm real intrigued about what you guys have been creating. And that was one of the reasons why I'd listened to a podcast that you were on. So I wanted to find out a little more about that. I've been in the, in, in you know, I say influencers, I'm using my, my quotes in, in the air right now as you yeah, go on my no. podcast. The influencer and the, you know, how we've this this term that we have that's been kind of bastardized and kind of been abused a little bit. But in regards to like SparkToro, like what is your guys' goal with the software? I mean, obviously, we talk about like audience intelligence, right? The idea is to be able to understand your audience and who's sharing your content or sharing other people's content. Give us a little rundown of it.
1: Sure. Yeah. So uh, I left Moz in, what was that, Uh, February of 2018 and basically started SparkToro the next morning after I left. And my co-founder is Casey Henry, who Casey and I actually worked together at Moz a number of years ago. And then he's he's been all over since then. He was at Wistia and HubSpot and mm. Ukla. But yeah, for the last 18 months, we've sort of been developing this product based on a theory that by crawling web profiles and social profiles and combining that data, into a giant database, you could query against it and figure out the sources of influence for any given audience. So I could type in, you know, whatever it is, electrical engineers in Canada, and see which publications they read and what, you know, YouTube channels they subscribe to, which podcasts they listen to, which websites they visit, which social accounts they follow, all those kinds of things. And uh, our focus... For this has been outside the what's now termed influencer market, because uh, influence I think influencer marketing today means pay half naked people on Instagram to pose with your product, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't we don't do any of that, right? So we in fact we completely ignore Instagram. Uh, for right now, mm. and that's an yes. intentional positioning thing, right? Because we don't want to be associated with that influencer market in our initial product. So we're we're very much focused on this idea of audience intelligence, right? I can, mm. I can search for any given uh, audience and I can see the words and phrases that they frequently use in their bio. I can see what words and phrases they often use in their content when they're sharing things, when they're linking to things. I can see which know, again, I can see which YouTube channels they subscribe Mm -hmm. to and what podcasts they listen to and which websites they visit. And and this is all inferred data through the sort of link graph of the social and uh, classic web.
0: And that's awesome. I I think, so when is it, have you guys launched yet? No, you guys
1: are still... We are in beta uh, right now. So we've been in beta since, what, the end of July. Mm -hmm. And I expect the beta period will be another maybe two to six weeks. And then we are hoping... To have a launch sometime in October or November. Gotcha.
0: And so it's interesting to me because you touched. Well, first, of all, I think it's I think it's interesting that you guys intentionally didn't do Instagram, right? Because as obviously you think of Instagram, you really think influencer marketing, right? That lifestyle, of, right, totally. You know, I mean, you're obviously we all want pink poodles and to eat caviar on private jets, right? I mean, that's obviously my goal. I've got that up on my my dreams board. But sure. The well, and the other thing I'll tell you too is I, I actually teach a course at UCLA on how to be an influencer. Huh. Well, so that's absolutely. why I'm laugh. I laugh about this. Yeah, it's, well, it's a personal branding and how to be an influencer course. Yeah. So the idea of it is less of like, hey, you don't have to try to get the pink poodle and eat caviar and and be half naked on a plane, if that's your thing. I guess that's okay. But really, it's about personal branding. Like, how do you build a brand, right? So we we kind of pull them in with the influencer marketing, and then I hit them with the like, hey, guess what? You're probably not going to be able to buy a private jet this year. <laughs> I know that's kind of flooring, and it sucks that I I'm half the one to have to give you that news. Actually, half of them probably that were in my class already had private jets. But anyways, Ooh. you get my point. Point wow. is, is I know. Super, super awesome. The the idea of the UCLA course for me was, or for them, is like then they can still tell their parents, "Hey, I was going to be an actor, but now I'm going to be an influencer." So now they've doubled their odds of being successful in the Los Angeles area. So I'm just here to keep the dreams alive. But what's interesting to me is what you talked about is the podcast side of things, and the reason why I say that. So I have this podcast, obviously, but I'm also guests on other podcasts, and it's. I would love to know like that audience, right? I'd love to know like either a who's following mine, but also Mm -hmm. who's following other podcasts, Mm -hmm. because I've done. Maybe at this point, maybe let's say fifty podcasts that I've that I've actually been interviewed the interesting part there's three or four of them that have absolutely brought me the most superb leads ever, right And I kind of get an idea of, of who their audience is a little bit. It's usually like these people that actually both of them, two of them that were really good were people that what they do is they sell businesses, they help, you know, put business together and, you know, put together for packaging. And so what it is, they have a lot of business owners that listen to it. And so it was a, like, both of them have been phenomenal interviews that I've gotten tons of leads from. And then I've other ones that are like huge, inter- well, in theory, huge interviews in regards to big guests and the people that are interviewing me and stuff like that, that I've gotten like zero great leads from. So that would be interesting for me. And once again, I'm sure for everybody, if you're in the podcast in the world, to be able to take a look at that in your audience and kind of really break that down. So I'm I'm really intrigued by that. In fact, I'm gonna sign up. and I don't yeah. know if I've already done it, but I'm gonna try to sign up for your guys's for the beta and to take a look at that. And I love that. I think it's I think audience, the data, obviously data is king, right? I mean, if you're able to go in and, and get an, an evaluation, I mean that's anything that we do, that if you pull the information in and make it palatable and so people can take a look at it and understand what they're looking at and, and how you can leverage it, I mean there's that's instant gold,
1: right? Yeah. And this is I, this is a very, very I think what's what's nice is there's a ton of complexity on the back end, but the front end is super simple, right? You you search for, you know, how your audience describes themselves or what they talk about or you know which social accounts they follow tend to follow or which websites they they visit and share or which hashtags they use, and then you know based on your search, you just get back a list, right? There's tabs, you know, here's the uh, here's which social profiles they pay attention to. Here's which websites they visit and read and share. Here's which uh, podcasts they listen to. Here's YouTube, right? And here's intelligence about you know, their profiles and that kind of stuff. And so you can just click and see this very simplistic information. I, my, my favorite part of the beta so far has been the feedback we've gotten on the interface, which is just like, oh, this is super simple and intuitive, right? It's just just lists. And and they're ordered by like percent of people who follow, you know, percent of people that you want in that audience who follow that particular publication or, or account. And um, I think that's a huge credit to Don Shepard and, and Christine Ryu, who are our UX and UI designers. They just did a, an extraordinary job as awesome. contractors. Um, you know, they sort of did it in like their... <laughs> their spare time they both have full-time gigs but uh managed to convince them to you know nights and weekends it with us and and that worked out great that's awesome
0: so that's cool so it sounds like it'll be launching probably in the next few months right you guys are still working on some of the stuff i'm excited to hear more about that so tell us a little bit about so that'll be out in the next few months tell us about i did hear something this is more on the on, on the personal side and my team was doing some research and i was trying to look this up how did you propose to your wife? I know this is a 360. We've gone from like, you know, hey, let's talk about Spark Toro. I know, I know. Sometimes I just go into, this is why it's Shane Barker's Sparky Madness, but like I told you, like sometimes the medication doesn't (laughs) work and I just said, hey, let's talk about your wife and how you proposed to her. So I did hear something epic about what you did with your wife in regards to the proposal. I just want to confirm it. Can you give us a little intel on on what you did for the proposal?
1: Uh, Sure. I mean, I think, I think you might be able to find it on YouTube still. Just prepare yourself for what, uh, you know, 2007 Rand looked like. I bought a local television commercial oh, awesome. back when watching TV with commercials was still a thing. Yeah. And uh, it aired during Geraldine's favorite show, Veronica Mars, which is now back on Hulu, magically. Hello. Hello. And in fact, I highly recommend fourth season, the season that they did on Hulu. I think it's some excellent noir detective fun. Uh, and then I hit a camera in the room. So you can you can watch her reaction when the advertisement comes on television, and then I I pull the ring out. Yep, it was uh, it was lots of fun.
0: Knocked it down, bud. Like was that just like I mean, how many was that just you kind of coming up with an idea? Did you have your old team working on this? I mean, it sounds like that was a little little.
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I um I was in inspired by a guy in the SEO world actually, who sort of had this uh, had this idea originally. Uh, gosh, I'm trying to remember. I don't think I, re- I can't remember his name now, but he had this idea and was running like a little blog to propose to his girlfriend during the Super Bowl uh, in, uh, I think he was based out of Tennessee and anyway, ended up being a whole, a whole thing, but yes, the the proposal now, I mean, I think that, that it seems a little silly in retrospect, but it was very fun at the time. But that's, I mean, but you made some impact. I mean, that's awesome. That's, I mean, that's, you know, it's like, how do you, right? Well, I mean, the only impact I really care about is, is you know, Geraldine going to say yes. Yeah. And, uh, You know, do we have a fun story to tell friends? And I I think that worked out great. That's too funny.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyways, Rand, hey,
1: once again, I really appreciate you taking the time
0: today. I'm really like, I'm really, was really excited that you remembered that I did that. I don't know. Once again, weird situation. Don't know why I did it. One of those weird things. And it came back 360 and I just, I was so so awesome. You guys both remember that. And it's even more awesome that you guys paid it forward to somebody else. And hopefully that kept going and hopefully. Yeah, yeah, of course. That is
1: so cool. No, that was a really fun experience.
0: Well, that's killer, man. Well, you know what? You have a great rest of your Friday. Um, I'm going to sign up for a Spark Tour right now for the beta to to test it out. If you guys ever, you ever need anything from me, man, once again, I feel like I've watched enough of your Friday whiteboard sessions that I probably owe you a lot more than just a dinner. But once again, I appreciate what you, the impact you've made on the industry and how transparent you are. And I look forward to your successes in the
1: future. Oh, Shane, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, bud. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.